Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm a feminist, but I recently did Question Time. And uh, my favorite of all the comments, and there were many on Twitter, as you can imagine, was why does the BBC have to bill her as Deborah Francis, white comedian? Political correctness gone mad. I mean, this is what we're doing now, dividing people racially. Why can't she just be a comedian? To which somebody brilliant uh, called Jason Wood responded, the lady's name is Deborah Francis White. It's hyphenated like Isla White Ferry. And he's he's spelled Isla, I-S-L-A, like the woman's name. Imagine being called Isla White Ferry. Anyway. um, I bet there is someone called that. Three, there might be. I'd say pornography. Like, if I was a porn star, I'd call myself Isla White Ferry. Well, there's a a name for you now in the... the... Yeah, or Alison Spittle. Why not go on by my own name? It's fine. (laughs) We look forward to your OnlyFans as... I mean, I think Isla White Ferry could have an alternative, a little bit more drag feel. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. I'll dress up as a boat. <laughs> Listen, there will be someone out there who wants that and you'll make good money. I'm a feminist, but all my favourite Taylor Swift songs are misogynist, I've realised. I don't like her songs where she calls out her exes. I like the ones where she's being passive-aggressive about other women in the industry. Because <laughs> I really relate to it. <laughs> Could you, could you give us a favourite lyric? Of Taylor Swift's? Mm. Oh, I'll make it up, wait, darling. <laughs> I'm Taylor Swift and I think I hate Katy Perry <laughs> because she tried to employ my team. There we oh. go. Yeah. Is that what that's about in part? Why are you I'm be so pretending many? that's why. I hate Katy Perry, but really, it's because she went out with John Mayer, my ex. Uh, wow. <laughs> that's me being Taylor Swift. You can look that up. Like, she probably does hate Katy Perry for a lot of other... They're friends now, but, like, uh, yeah. Yeah, there's tensions. It's like in the comedy community. I'm a feminist, 
But my very favourite tweet was from Nick Hurley about Question Time, which said, at Deborah FW, copied me in. Mm. I'm a feminist, but Deborah Francis White's outfit stole the show on Question Time tonight. And can I say, of all... Yes, I know. That's how I felt. So loads of people wrote, thank you so much for standing up to Robert Jenrick. Really appreciate what you said about the... Really appreciate you stood up to the Tory cabinet minister. But the one that I'm framing is outfit stole the show. I was very pleased about that. Nice. Yeah. Do you know, I got off really lightly. I was worried it would be a bloodbath and I wasn't going to look at Twitter for like a week. But then I did, and I'll tell you why. Because I got into a bit of a thing with Thangham Debonair. Yes, oh, I saw that. Yeah. I was watching it like football. And I was like, good or dead? Well, it was, it was surprising <laughs> to me that I felt like she was going to be an ally in the dressing room mm-hmm. and then she was quite defensive about something. It turned out I was right, but let's not dwell on that part. <laughs> let's not dwell on the part where I was right and the shadow cabinet minister either didn't know or just didn't want to tell the truth. I don't know. It was one of those, though. And so I thought... It was going to be a bloodbath on Twitter where lots of people are going to be horrible. But honestly, what I have discovered, re-going on television and Twitter, is I would rather be the comedian on the political show than the female comedian on the comedy show. Mm. Because if you're the female comedian on the comedy show, and there is mostly only one, not always, but often, what you get afterwards on Twitter is, why would you think you, with your lady features, would be able to do this with all of these men folk? With you're on the political show, they're like, thanks for being a real person saying real things to a cabinet minister. And so your gender gets blurred because the comedian trumps lady face. But on a comedy panel, lady face is all they can see because they don't believe women are funny, the people that come on. So it's really, really interesting. There was one yeah. guy that was rude. And I don't get a lot of people being rude about my appearance, but one guy was rude about my appearance. So I just... <laughs> This is terrible. I should have ignored him. I should have ignored him. And I know I should have. Don't Ooh. feed the trolls. Don't. If it just, I know I should have ignored him. You are right. You're allowed one. It's like tax. But he was, he, was, he was rude about my appearance. Yeah. So I just posted the hottest shot of myself from a, like, basically a modelling shoot underneath and just put lol. <laughs> and he... And he, uh, he wrote underneath, that's adorable. And then under that, he wrote... Just in case you think I'm being sarcastic, I'm not. I really do think that's adorable. And I was like, oh. The last time I was on TV, a man with a picture of his child in the profile picture said he had a wank over me. And then when I said, that's disgusting, he then pretended he was a policeman and had got hacked. That was the most funniest thing ever. Oh, yes, that was brilliant. What was his name? Ollie, that was it. Hi, Ollie, if you're listening. I hope every wank you have is tinged with sadness from now on. Uh, I feel like if he's, te- if he's coming after you to tell you that, every wank for a long time has been tinged with sadness. I think so. I just don't believe that anyone who's spending their time doing that on the internet has got a life that's turned out how they hoped it would. Yeah, you don't see Barack Obama uh, going, <laughs> adding people going, going, I've just had a wank over you, do you know? <laughs> Check, I'm verified. (laughs) Elon Elon Musk, right? Elon Musk, yeah. I'm not saying he does. I don't know that he does. I don't know that he does, but I'm saying he could. Yeah, he has the air of it. He has the air of it. (laughs) No, I'm not ruling it out. I rule it out with Barry Obama. I do not rule it out with the Musk. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm a feminist, but when I hear a dog owner call a poodle by a man's name, I'm like, what? Uh, Because I just presume all poodles are women. Due to 
watching Lacoos Talking 3, Lady and the Tramp, and 101 Dalmatians. I'm a feminist, but I signed up to Mum's Net. <gasps> no, I had to for a reason. For okay. I needed to look Let at the okay. reason be love. <laughs> don't, don't log on to Mum's Net. Okay, all right. <laughs> Unless you want. I, <laughs> anyway, sorry. I, I believe yeah. that Mumsnet has recently put in its formal application to become part of the dark web. Okay. <laughs> and before that happens, you know, you don't want the door to be closed. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I needed to for a special thing. It was something I needed to see that was only on Mumsnet. And okay. I was just like, oh, I'll just join and then I'll unjoin. I've not been able to unjoin because now I get emails that say, am I being unreasonable? And they are so good. I'm addicted to them. So women ask things like, am I being unreasonable to if, think Croydon is not an acceptable place to live? <laughs> it's stuff like that. Am I being unreasonable to expect that my stepdaughter leave at five o'clock on a Sunday night and no later because that is when her mother is meant to collect her? because she is not my daughter. She is my husband's daughter. And if he wants her to be in the house after five o'clock, surely he should take her for a drive. Mm. Like, things like that. That's not exactly verbatim. They're much worse than that. Shouldn't she go to stepmom's net? Is that not an option for her? <laughs> as a... Possibly. I think she's got her own favourite children as well. I think it's, oh. it's sometimes like stepmothers in fairy stories that would leave a child in a forest um, with some breadcrumbs. But there's amazing ones. Am I being unreasonable to not want to tell my friend where I got my garden ornament was one I read recently. (laughs) She copies my style and it took me a long time to find it. Also, it was very expensive. I don't want her telling everyone what it cost. She should find her own garden ornament. I don't see why I should share my excellent taste with her. She is lucky to have a friend like you. Oh, my. It's amazing. And it's just such fodder. And if you're a writer... It's, I mean, it's really hard to cut yourself off from that kind of source material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. It's you know. like, I support you and your decisions. <laughs> but uh, look, I will give it up eventually, but just give me another couple of weeks. All right. Okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm a feminist, uh, but I think mugs are gendered, especially my mugs. And I never let my boyfriend drink from my pink WAP mug. Because uh, it's my mug. And, uh, yeah, do you have a wet ass pussy mug? I do, yeah. Fern Brady bought for me. <laughs> it's oh. pink and glittery. Okay. All yeah. Right. And it says WAP across the front of it. I also have a Kim Woodburn mug. It <laughs> says adulterer. And uh, she's pointing at me, going, You're an adulterer. And it's very good. My boyfriend has a Gremlins mug, and that's his mug. And so, and, uh, what if you found him drinking out of the WAP mug? Out of my pink mug? Yeah. No, that's, that's emotional cheating. I look at everything as emotional cheating. See, I, the only thing that I need line I've got like that is watching ahead on TV shows. That's emotional cheating. If he... Having friends, emotional <laughs> cheating. <laughs> well, <laughs> we might need to talk about the parameters of your relationship. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I said to Tom recently, I would rather you had an affair with Elizabeth Moss than watch the next episode of Handmaid's Tale without me. Yeah. I would rather come home and find him in bed with Elizabeth Moss. Is that because you'd get to meet Elizabeth Moss then? <laughs> and you'd be like, uh, hey. I, I actually met Elizabeth Moss. What? And she admired my clutch bag. Oh, 
Oh my gosh, yeah. that is the kind of interaction I'd want. I, well, it was. It was the. It was amazing. Do you show her Tom? Then <laughs> admire this. <laughs> Do you know? I didn't. I didn't push my husband to. That. I feel that would have been a little weird in the context of The Handmaid's Tale, <laughs> to go. Have you met my husband? <laughs> she doesn't want to be called off Thomas. She doesn't want that. She doesn't want that. She doesn't want that. Nobody wants that. Okay. Just. Oh. Although I am in fur time. <laughs> I'm sorry that I laughed really hard at you saying that. That's, under any other context, that would have been very bad of me. I but... can't make Elizabeth Moss have her baby. It's too traumatising. I've seen it too much. That would be the most showbiz, though, ever. I feel, what, it would to feel... use Lizzie Moss uh, as a handmaid? Yeah. I, no. I, if someone said to me, Deborah Francis White is using Elizabeth Moss, as I, I'd be like, yeah, I believe that. Good for her. I am. I'm live appalled. Your best life. I'm appa- <laughs> live, you can't say live your best life, have a handmaid. I, <laughs> I'm a feminist, but live your best life, have a handmaid. <laughs> Might be a step too far. These are meant to be things on the periphery of like, oh, it's a little bit naughty. Not crime. <laughs> it can't be, I'm a feminist, but I killed a woman and she's under my patio. Like, it can't be that. <laughs> oh, no. I was saving that for three episodes away. <laughs> Live from King's Place in London, this one's Mary Johnson, Guilty Feminist with me, David Francis White, Jessica Hurst, Alison Spittle, and our very special guest, Mimi A, talking about questioning everything. Are you ready for the Guilty Feminist? Then please welcome to the stage, King's Place, Deborah Francis White. This really feels different from those. Do you remember those Eat Out to Help Out shows that we did? You know, when we were allowed to have a show in a garden? And they were really nice, but they felt sad because we knew that by doing them, we were making lockdown longer. You know, that feeling of like, well, we've been allowed out. I suppose we should do it. Should we, though? Should we? And we did come back to King's Place. But it felt more like um, little clusters of handmaids with masks in sort of little, little groups. And we were all like, so I guess this is just a one-time thing. And it felt very much like a really sad one-night stand where everyone left feeling worse about themselves. And this feels so different because this feels like the beginning of the rest of our lives. Um, I mean, we might be wrong. Uh, We might be wrong. But I'm a violent vaccine, half full girl. And I'm only half vaxxed, but they say the first one is the potent one. And that the second one is sort of just, you know, for shawzies. But by they, I do mean somebody said that to me. They said it. I can't remember who they were. No, actually, I think it was the nurse or the doctor who did it. I think it was a medical professional. I think I was vaccinated by a medical professional. (laughs) I was called to a town hall somewhere, a church hall somewhere. And I went in and I followed. All All the volunteers were Australian. Did anyone have a lot of Australian volunteers? Wasn't that lovely? Did anyone else have... You're an Australian volunteer. Well, thank you for your service. 
Public Service. I mean, Australia has done so much about COVID, right, hasn't it? Including sending us volunteers. Uh, I don't know why so many Australians... I think there's just something about the Australian spirit. I do say myself as a dual national and somebody who uh, was born and raised in Australia. There is a sort of, you know, oh, I've got to stick together in these times. Can do, can do, can do attitude that the Brits really don't have at all. Uh, It's more like, what's the point? What's the point? It's a bit lacking. It's why, and I said it on a recent podcast, I haven't had emails yet, but I know I'm going to get them. It's why I will not have a British hypnotherapist. Because there's just a sense of, I don't know, lack of ambition and disappointment about British people. And I don't want to be put into a trance state and then that dripped in. Because I, and I'm sure if you are a British hypnotherapist, I am sure you are an amazing one. And also I'm sure you've got a great sense of humour about yourself, so you won't write in. Um, um, so uh, thank you, Australians. Uh, who's vaccinated? Give us a cheer. Who's too young? so lovely that my audience is so young. See, that in the old days, I would have gone, oh, I don't want to know, born in the 90s. And now I'm just like, youth, the elixir of life. This year has really changed me. I'll tell you that. I'll tell you that. This year has changed me. It might be as awful as this pandemic has been, and there's no silver lining to a pandemic. But in terms of the lockdown, it might be the most important year of my life. Just because I've had to sit still and stay in the one place and face all my demons. And has anybody else felt that? Has anybody else worked on themselves? I've just done so much DIY on myself. I just feel like it's just been a permanent like hardware store. You're sort of just painting the interiors, wallpapering. Has anybody else felt that or experienced that? Has anyone else used this time to kind of go, oh, it's everything slowed down? Is anyone else a little bit nervous about coming out? Yeah. yeah. I mean, and yet you've come out tonight. So <laughs> you've faced that for already. Well done. I think we should just make a pact here that... Three nights a week is all we do. And then if something brilliant comes up on a fourth night, obviously you can do that if it's brilliant enough. But then and, and if, if something comes up on a fifth night, it has to be really brilliant. If, something, if it's a sixth night, you'd really want that to be quite good at that point. So I'll be back out seven nights a week. I know it. I can feel it already. I can feel my sense of, of resolve already because so many of my friends are going to say, but I haven't seen you for nearly a year and a half. So are you, am I the one that's going to end up just a ban- Of course, I'm not going to be able to say that to anybody because I'm an absolute soft touch. Hit me up is what I'm saying. Um, but I do. Three nights a week is what I want to do. That's my goal to myself. Four nights if there's something special. Um, Five nights if it's a show as well. If, if that's work. That's work. You cannot judge me for that. That's no more than five nights and an afternoon on the weekend. And uh, if there's a daytime barbecue thing, that's not a night, is it? Has anybody worn a feminist T-shirt? Just, just one man. Is that right? Come on. Tell me more. You've had it ironed. It says smash the patriarchy and you had it ironed. That's really a mixed message for me, sir. As a man, I have my smash the patriarchy wardrobe. I have an ensemble. Have that ironed, will you, Wilma? When I get back, I want my socialist chinos pristine. Uh, No, tell me, when you say you had it ironed, oh, your boyfriend did it. 
come on, come on, come on. Just because he's a man doesn't mean it's okay for you to say, I had it ironed. Don't be cheering that. Don't be cheering that and being like, oh, thank God, he farmed it out onto a man. That's okay then. That's fine. Did you want, sorry, I don't know your names. Uh, smash the patriarchy and Ben. Um, good couple. Smash and Ben. Um, ben, do you enjoy the ironing? He cooks the dinner and you? Oh, you iron the T-shirts. Oh, okay. All right. So do you say, I wanted supper and I had it made? That's my only question. As long as it's this two-way street, I'm fine. Because couples are compatible because, you know, I do the bit I don't mind doing, you do the bit you don't. That's why you have a partner. There's no other good reason for it except to get out of it. Mostly it's a drain, honestly. But if you really hate unstacking the dishwasher and they're okay with it, that makes all the rest of it worthwhile. Um, That's what I'd recommend to you if you're single. Um, there's not a massive benefit in coupling up. It's, a, it's mostly an option-limiting situation, but there are crucial moments, like, for example, saying, have my T-shirt ironed. I'm curious that you iron your T-shirts. I would never iron a T-shirt. Who else has ironed a T-shirt? Who, just give us a cheer if you iron your T-shirts. Why are you reporting your partner like you're in a police state? What is happening here? Have we found two men in this audience that have come with ironed T-shirts? <laughs> Can I ask you, does he iron his own or does he have them ironed? Uh, he, he irons his own. You could learn from that. That's <laughs> irons his own. But does she do the cooking? <gasps> the four of you would make a great dinner party mix, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Anyone else worn anything or brought anything out that feels significant tonight? really significant. Go on. Feminist earrings. What do they say? Oh, I see. They're like those, um, the ones that you sometimes see on Lou Doors. Like Jesus with a what? Do you mean like a crucifix with a... Yeah, yeah. I've never seen it that way. But it makes sense. Jesus probably was a woman. And then down the ages, it got rewritten and rewritten and rewritten. And then, you know, that's probably what happened. Sheezers. I've started a new religion. That's it. That's it, my personal Lord and Saviour. Thank you very much. Um, Are we ready to start the show? Then please, welcome to the stage, the incredible Alison Spittle! Hello. Yeah, I've got a drink. I was going to twerk, um, but I forgot how to do it. So. <laughs> I forgot how to do it? Yes, yeah, so I just went for a shimmy. Okay. Uh, oh, when okay. in doubt, you got a shimmy. I mean, you, know? you are in a shimmying outfit, Alison Spittle. Oh, thank you. It is very clear to me that you haven't gigged for a while. Yes, very much so. And you are... <laughs> haven't left the house in a while. It's yeah, so this is, this is, I feel like, with you more than anyone I know, stand-up gives you life. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do get my validation from strangers. <laughs> Uh, How have you found a year and a half with no live gigging, only only Zoom gigging, which isn't really gigging? Uh, 
Well, uh, I've really enjoyed looking at my face while gigging. That's really helped my self-esteem. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. I'm Look, telling you. I'm telling you. I don't, yeah. assume it's too much, though. I've become obsessed with... See that tooth there and that tooth there? Yeah. So these are the teeth, either side of my middle teeth. Okay. The two middle front ones. These two protrude out in front of the front ones, which I have never noticed before. Yeah. But now I'm on Zoom all the time, I'm like, oh, no. And then I did question time, and I was yeah. like, oh, my God, it's so obvious. Why has no one ever told me? And I'm now obsessed with it. You should look at, like, at your teeth like a boy band, okay? And the ones that are coming out in front yes. are simply the ones with the most star power. So <laughs> you have Shane and you have Mark, the two brunettes out of Westlife. No, people disagree. Uh-uh. Uh. They're, they're just... I mean, they're e- I think they're pretty even. And they, yeah, on the front, same they as Westlife. Look, <laughs> sorry. On the front, they look straight. Mm-hmm. Um, like lots we, of boy bands. Yes. Um, <laughs> but behind the scenes, things are very different. So they tell me. I was spending time with Alison and Fern, and they were telling me about... What's the thing on the internet called? Fern Brady Fr- is a comedian. And, uh, you do a podcast with? Yeah, she's a comedian and also a pop star detective. And uh, she's obsessed with the concept of uh, beards and blind items. Blind items, that's blind what it items, is. Blind yes. items, which is some kind of deep gossip on the internet yeah. that not many people know about, but it's meant to be kind of real gossip. She keeps telling me that there's a celebrity that does stuff to fish. And... Uh, I'm like, Fern, that's an episode of The Simpsons. Like, someone is like, that's what, Troy McClure. What, sex with fish? Well, actually, the other day, I was like, so does he have sex with fish? And she's like, no, I think it's way worse. And I was like, how is it way worse? <laughs> like, she never got to explain. Uh, but I'm one day I'll so ask her. I know, I'm I know. I'm thinking of so many things. So, to distract... Mm-hmm. This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and our hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. Hey. I'm Jeff Francis White. With me is Alison Spittle. And we're talking about questioning everything. Woo! Um, I feel like we're in an age where we need to question everything uh-huh. and check our sources. Yes. Do you feel we need to question everything now? Are you a natural questioner or are you a natural believer who's had to learn to be sceptical? Because I'm a believer. I'm a natural... I believe people and I've had to... Be, learn to be sceptical. Um, I'm a believer. I'm one of those people. I'm very gullible. Uh, me too. Um, I, like, I'm yeah. open and trusting. Yeah, and I think it's nice to be that way. And like the worst thing that's ever happened to me when I've believed someone was... Uh, <laughs> actually, well, it was... <laughs> it was when I was sharing a can with a very old man. Uh, <laughs> what? Sharing a cab or a can? No, a can, a drink, a drink. Okay. <laughs> Not a cab, but that would be Notion. logical. Uh, no. I was sharing a can of a very old man under a bridge, and he said to me, have you heard the song Hurt by Johnny Cash? And I was like, yes. And he said, I wrote that. And that man was not Trent Reznor. Uh, he was a man called Leather Couch Rob, because um, he looked like a leather couch. Uh, so, so, you know, I've learnt, I've learnt not to believe. Yeah. I've learnt to question. I didn't question him because he had the can. So I just went, oh, yeah. I, 
<laughs> I also no no no. I also was a child. My father told me he learnt to swim in a creek with freshwater crocodiles, okay. and he was raised in the country in Australia, right in Queensland. So I totally believed that. And then I always told my friends that, and if you know, it came up about learning to swim. Well, my father learned to swim with freshwater crocodiles. Yeah. And as a grown-up, I said that to him once. I referenced it in something. Well, of course, you learned to swim with freshwater crocodiles, and he said, "No, I didn't." And I said, "You told me that." He said, "I must have been pulling your leg." He said, "He said I would be dead if I'd learned to to swim with freshwater crocodiles." It's like you would be killed, you'd be eaten. And so I was devastated because I'd held that all my life yeah. as a sort of hallmark of my father's bravery in childhood and, you know, rough country Queensland childhood. Yeah. And, yeah, he'd just taken the piss. <laughs> did you watch, like, Crocodile Dundee and go, that's my dad? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did, I did. And I was so, like, you know, not that he was that particular... It just it sounded true. Our guest today is a Burmese food writer turned activist who has been raising awareness about the crisis in Myanmar since the coup in February. Her award-winning book, Mandalay, Recipes and Tales from a Burmese Kitchen, is loved by Nigella Lawson yeah, and was chosen by The Observer, the FT, and she also co-hosts the food and culture podcast, The MSG Pod. Please welcome Mimi A. Hello, Mimi. Mimi, I have your book. Yeah, and I just realised when, oh, when she said the title of it, I was like, oh my God. Oh. <laughs> Are you fangirling now? I am a bit, yeah. yeah did you a... tweet me about cauliflower cheese? I did! <laughs> I did! That's, that's not in my book. Oh, <laughs> yeah, so, like, uh, I've recently, like, you know, I've always been a fan of MSG, but, like, uh, never bought it for the home, you know what I mean? It's just I've never kind of seen it, and I put it on, uh, I bought it, put it on cauliflower cheese. Amazing. It's so nice. It's, uh, yeah. Sorry, but yeah, I, I, I just, I'd just like to say, um, just like uh, I do aerobics at home, now I do MSG at home. It's <laughs> a balance. You know? <laughs> Has MSG had bad press? I know this is not the top line of our conversation. Uh, it's not... the crisis in Myanmar. But <laughs> before I, we get I, there... I spent a whole day arguing with people about this yesterday, so that's fine. Great. Wait, so um, I mean, MSG we're not... or the crisis? Uh... <laughs> MSG. Okay. Um, <laughs> The short answer is it's just a type of salt. It's absolutely fine. In this country, there isn't so much phobia around it. But in America, it has been vilified for, like, since the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, the phobia is coming over to this country. So um, I was on BBC Food Programme yesterday talking about it. And then I got, like, about 100 people tweeting me saying that I was an idiot, which was great. Um, wow. So... <laughs> So MSG is fine. It's fine. Top line, MSG is fine. It's It's a Western conspiracy that it's a bad thing. It's an American conspiracy, to be fair. But like I said, it's infiltrated to this country. Yeah, I thought it wasn't good for you. I I heard that. But, I mean, it hasn't stopped me, really. (laughs) It's in everything. Yeah, but I've heard loads of things are bad for me, and I've kept doing them. (laughs) I mean, you you can't stop everything that's bad for you. What would you do? There'd be very little left, yeah. There'd be so little left. I mean, but also, every mm. with food, each week a different thing is said to be bad for you or good for you. Foods are presented as poisons or medicines yeah. all the time. Yeah. So MSG, 
nothing wrong with it. It's just a kind of salt. It's fine. Just don't overdo it. In the same way you wouldn't overdo salt or sugar or, yeah, just, just be well, moderate. Well, you don't know me, clearly. Oh. Um, <laughs> when you say you wouldn't overdo it, you're just wrong. Uh, I, you're my guest and I'm, I want to be polite, but I'm just forced into a corner here. I would overdo it. I have overdone it. I will overdo it again. Um, <laughs> that sounds like something you'd say at court when you're being taken away. I'll do it again. I'm overdone it. <laughs> Listen. If it's a crime, then it definitely isn't. Um, so, Mimi, your main job is you're a food writer. Yes. And I thought that meant you cooked, but you said in the dressing room, not really. No, I do. I just don't enjoy it very much. <laughs> so you, you enjoy food, but not cooking, because I feel then we are sisters. Yeah, I'm a glutton. I, I love food. Um, I like talking about food. I really like the whole execution part of it. I do do it, but kind of, you know, under duress. Yes. Yeah. Because the thing I think about food preparation yeah. is it takes so long. Do, like, do people know how long it takes to cook things? So long. <laughs> and then people eat it in five minutes. And people, like, honestly will spend two hours on a meal. And then people just go, yum, 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 yum. Thank you, bye. Yeah, and I'm just like, how do people spend their lives doing that? Like, I don't understand. And, like, if you work in a professional kitchen, you mm. don't even get to see that person eat it. Or hear them tell you how amazing you are. And for me, if I were to cook like a a Sunday roast or something, I would tell people, clear an hour out of your calendar because you're not going to bolt it. I eat very quickly and I try and eat slow. I would say, you're not allowed to bolt this down. First of all, we're going to look at it. Then we're going to smell it. Then we're going to talk about how I cooked it. Then we're going to have slow tasting. Okay, we're all going to do one mouthful together because it took me a long time. And I peeled potatoes for this, guys. So... Taste just one with the gravy. Okay, have you got that? What notes are you getting? That's how I would be if I cooked a roast. I just couldn't, just I couldn't accept people bolting it down. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's nothing like uh, eating a nice roast potato and feeling trapped. Um, <laughs> you know, reminds me of Christmas. <laughs> hey. Uh. <laughs> I hope your mum doesn't listen to this. Oh, my mum makes the best roast potatoes. Does she she make enough, though? Because I swear no one ever makes enough. Yeah, yeah, nah, nah, she doesn't, (laughs) unfortunately. But, like, you know, she tenderly looks after them. Like, they look like little stained glass windows. Do you know that they've been left in the grease for that long? Oh, nice. I love it. The crispy crispuses. The crispy, oh, I want it it to tear the roof of my mouth. I want to feel something. (laughs) Well, I well, I eat my roast potatoes. <laughs> I hear that. I hear that. <laughs> Do you know the food that I enjoy the most, in truth, is it, mm. if we've had people over, Tom's cooked something delicious. I've eaten while I've chatted and I've been like in a dynamic state and I haven't really tasted it properly. Mm. When everyone goes and there's leftovers in the kitchen <laughs> and then I just stand at the counter and I just have like morsels. Just, I, I just heard someone almost have a mini orgasm there. <laughs> go, oh. But just like, I just can really taste it. And honestly, I don't like eating with other people that much. I like to commune on my own. <laughs> cake especially is a private pleasure. Yeah. I've no interest in eating cake out. I want to eat in and I want to be able to just, I don't want Tom there. I don't want people coming into the room. I just, mm. I just want like a little sanctuary. You know how men have man caves yeah. where they want to just like, I don't know what they do there and I don't care. But that I want a man cave, but for roast potatoes and chocolate vanilla Hagen does. So does that mean you don't order desserts when you're in a restaurant? Or it, no, I probably will anyway. <laughs> but I, I just really enjoy it at home. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So tell me, how did you get into food writing? Yeah. When you're not someone who's a cook, but you love food. And what is it that draws you or drives you to talk about and to write the Burmese Kitchen book? I originally got into food writing because I had a blog in 2009 where I spent most of my time just criticising people on MasterChef. Um, <laughs> uh, this, this is before social media, right? So people live tweet like when they think someone's done something shit, right? But in those days, they didn't do that. So I would do these recaps on my blog and I'd be like, oh, look at that guy, he's a dick. Um, and, and people liked it. And like, I got a following from it and then I started thinking, this is a, s- a slightly shameful way for people to know about me. Um, so I pivoted and started talking about food more generally rather than just being rude about people. Didn't stop some of the MasterChef people actually tracking me down and telling me off. So Tracking <laughs> you down and telling you off? Yeah. Could what? they not just cook better? Like, Would their efforts no, not no, be... No. Just you know, tracking someone down. I, I was at a trying food... Quinell properly, mate. No, no, no. I was at a food festival once, and uh, John Tarode cornered me and told <gasps> me off. So. John really? Tarode cornered yeah. you. <laughs> what? And told you all I can imagine now is while that's happening, somebody is going. John Tarode is cornering <laughs> Mimi I with a red Jew and a face full of rage. <laughs> Yeah, that, that was pretty much it. Mimi so. is serving an acrid blog. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you started writing then about food more generally, about just to generally. kind of get away from the fact that you were heckling effectively. Yeah. You were basically like Statler and Waldorf and the Muppets, so, heckling the master chefs, yeah. and then you thought, I'm going to pivot, and I might write about yeah. Burmese food, because that's well, your culture. So, Basically, yeah, basically, John Tyrold got what he wanted by cornering you, and now he's like, I'll do it to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that was what he wanted. Did he bully you into doing a cookbook? <laughs> no, God, no, no, no. He's blocked me on Twitter, actually. Oh, my God. <laughs> I had no idea. Wow. This is like somebody heckling Strictly Come Dancing and then writing a dancing book. Um, <laughs> I think I really upset him. I hurt his feelings. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. I well, laugh, look, I feel like if anybody is going to be the person to bridge that gap and get you two back in a room, it's going to be me. So <laughs> next time you come on the show, I'm going to bring him out oh, like, like, it's, like we're on Jerry Springer <laughs> yeah. and make a reunion. Yeah, I'm going to have male poodles. You'll bring them together. Yeah. It'll be our new... It will turn out that he's the biological father of Tales from a Burmese Kitchen. <laughs> it's it's going to be beautiful. Um, so you were writing about Burma, and that's what you were known for. Yeah. And then in February, could you give us a little bit of context? Because we've been reading about it, but I think we often read about those things in isolation, and we don't have a working understanding. Could you give us a sort of a place to come in at? Yeah. Because we yeah. want to help. Right. So uh, my family are from Burma, which is now called Myanmar. Um, So in the news, you'll see it referred to as Myanmar. And basically, Burma, because I'm going to keep calling it that. And it's it's okay to use either. It's fine. And in fact, so one of the issues, obviously, there was a coup in February. The military took over. Um, One of the things that they're basically massive dicks and they've done all sorts of things 
just to annoy the people of Burma. So one of the things they did is they changed the name of the country from Burma to Myanmar. They changed our flag 10 years ago. I still have trouble identifying the Burmese flag because of it. But basically, it's been under a dictatorship since 1962. And when I say dictatorship, I mean proper, like, our media was censored, you would get propaganda, like billboards all around you, just um, people would disappear in the middle of the night. It was just one of those things where you're like, this is kind of like not a, not a safe place to be. And so my family kind of escaped um, when, just before I was born, so I was born in this country. So this continued for until 2010. And then in 2010, a sort of civilian government came in. But what happened was the military wrote this really shit constitution which reserved like 25% of the seats in parliament to themselves. They became like the fifth branch of government. They had all these kind of powers that overrode what the you know, civilian government could do. So although the rest of the world sort of thought it was a democracy, it wasn't. So it basically continued behind the scenes as a dictatorship, but kind of to the rest of the world, people thought, oh, it's fine, we can start visiting Burma, KFC open branches, Coca-Cola rolled in, so it's, you know, to the rest of the world, internationally, Burma looked like it was a democracy. Mm. Now, what happened was that in 2000 and, no, 2000, 2020, basically, there was an election, and the election was won in a landslide by a party called the NLD. The NLD are like the civilian party of choice, basically. So much like America, won on the landslide, it was all great. Parliament was meant to convene on the 1st of February. On the 31st of January, suddenly there was whispers all around saying, we think all the members of Parliament have been abducted. What? What? Just just gossip in the street, like maybe a has been... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then people were going missing. And then the next morning, on our version of the BBC, which is called Miawadi, there was an announcement saying, we're declaring a state of emergency, we're overruling the election, we're in charge now. So so basically the military overturned the results of the election, declared it's now a two-year state of emergency... Suspended loads and loads of civil rights, so right to privacy, right to a, a family, all of those things, just so that they could do whatever they like. I mean, I knew that there'd been a coup, but I didn't know they abducted everybody. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. So, so basically the president, the state councillor, the cabinet, all the main political leaders, all activists, old activists. So, like, people who had been active during 1988, which was the last time there was an uprising, they all disappeared. A lot of these people are still missing. A lot of them are in hiding. Um, And what's actually happening now, kind of bizarrely, is we now have like a shadow government. So we have the military saying that we're rightfully in charge. It was a fake election. Everything we say goes. And we have this shadow government who are trying to govern via Facebook, Mm. basically. So, So they are issuing edicts over Facebook saying, actually, we're the democratically elected government, even though we're all in hiding. So it is the biggest shit show. I wouldn't even um, buy a mattress on Facebook, never mind I know, trying to rule the country. I know, I know. So, so like, we're like, oh, you know, they've just said that we're suspending all obligations to pay gas and electricity. So that's what the shadow government has said, that's all the people. And all the people are like, okay, that's great, but we're going to get shot by the army. So yeah. it's kind of a really odd situation. And so they can give some really favourable policies, given oh, yeah. that they don't have to fulfil them because they're not really in power. Yeah, that's the issue. And then, of course, the army has been doing whatever they like to try and suppress any kind of dissent. So since February, they have killed 
780 people, including 50 children. Oh, God. Um, they have also imprisoned over 5,000 people, all under, like, entirely arbitrary reasons. They have these... <laughs> it's a colonial hangover. They have these... Um, in the penal code, they're called Section 505A and 505B. And basically, it, it kind of says that if you commit any kind of treason, and that counts as slagging off the military on Facebook, uh, you can be arrested. And so, like, our equivalent of George Clooney is in hiding, and our equivalents of Justin Timberlake is in prison. So, wow. <laughs> because so, yeah. they've spoken out against because they've Because they've just posted a tweet saying, this sucks. Wow. Wow. <laughs> And the people are resisting. I was listening to your MSG podcast special on this, which was really interesting. Yeah. They're doing a pots, um, banging pots, a bit like we came out to clap for the NHS. Yes. Can you tell us about that? Yep. So one thing you need to know is that Burma is a very superstitious country even now. This is one of the issues around what all the problems are. But one of the superstitions we have is that if you bang pots and pans, it gets rid of pestilence and evil spirits, right? So this is a tradition we have anyway. Now, one of the activist leaders said... I'll tell you what, let's do this as a show of defiance to the military. Let's do it at 8 o'clock every day. And so, you know, like clockwork, what's been happening is that people in their own houses, so not even like outside on the streets, have just been getting the loudest pots and pans they can and just clanging them for like a, a minute or two. And it's infuriated the military to the extent that they've actually outlawed it now. So Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so people are being dragged away for hitting, for hitting their saucepans. Oh, my God. Yeah. So it's a bit like the British superstition that if you clap for the NHS at 8 o'clock, you don't have to pay nurses. <laughs> Similar. Similar thing. Similar thing. Um, so there's all these resistances. Then there's been people sort of doing traffic resistances, haven't there? Like people stopping their cars and things yeah. like that. Yeah. So in 1988, the last time there was a big uprising in this way, it was mainly kind of the civilians... Not really using violence, but protesting in a way that the army was able to say that we're quelling civil unrest. And so at the time, they just opened fire and up to 10,000 people died in 1988. This time around, I think probably because it's a newer generation, they understand how to organise a bit better because, you know, they've got social, social media, media, they've got internet. They have been organising in a way, so they're doing peaceful resistance. And when I say peaceful, I mean to the extent that they're completely bamboozling the military by doing things like forming human pyramids or, as you say, just stopping all of their cars and saying, oh, our cars have broken down, which means that, you know, military can't get their supplies to come in. So basically, they're, they're trying their best to piss off the military. And at the same time, everyone's stopped work as well. Mm. So since February, most people have been on strike, which is obviously a problem because everyone's getting poorer. People are running out of food. Mm. But at the same time, the military can't do what it wants to do because the country's shutting down. It's kind of a battle of wills because there are 54 million people in Burma. None of them have got any guns. So the only way they can combat people with guns is by being a pain in the ass. So that's what they've been doing since February, being the biggest pain in the asses that they can. I mean, that's this amazing. Amazing, <laughs> this sort of uh, peaceful resistance that is actually go slows. And there's so much to be said for people who are bravely resisting in the face of fearing that they may personally be taken away. Mm. Is there misogyny attached to this in terms of feminism? Are you seeing anything gendered going on? Yes, it always has been. So, like I said, they've been in charge since the 60s. One of the first things the military did was they requisitioned businesses from women. So my, yeah, so my great-aunt and my grandmother, they both had big, successful businesses, and they were both taken away by the state. 
And they've just been doing that kind of thing ever since then. So the military has this idea that they are the father, the patriarchy. And so they've imposed their vision of a true Burma on the country, and they have done since the 60s. They've demoted Burmese women into second-class citizens. And before this happened, we were kind of on all the right tracks. So like, we got the right to vote four years after the UK did. You know, yeah. it's just, we had women surgeons in 1911, you know. So mm-hmm. it was a movement that was going definitely the right way, the right direction. And then the military came along and went, fuck that. <laughs> we don't like mm-hmm. women. We're going to take away all your money. We're going to take away all your businesses. And we're going to treat you like shit. So... <laughs> oh, man. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. But it's, tr- it's interesting because like, I think... we're the patriarchy, it's like you're the shittest dads ever. I know. You know? Right, right. I do think they do see the power of women, though, because that's why they destabilize women. I think whenever there's some big power imbalance like that, they look for, in a way, who's really running the country, who's really connected, who is empowered when they have money and self-actualization. Lots of dictators do want to destabilize women and they just want women pumping out babies and yep. growing the population. Yep. And they know that we're great at organizing, we're great at talking, we're great at connecting, we're great at inspiring other people to do things and getting on with it. So what can we do to help? This is going to sound really lame, but petitions. Petitions are actually working. I have on my um, social media, there's a link tree, basically, where it has all these links to, for example, you can do an automatic email to your MP um, because they have this thing. uh, It's an early day motion, which basically says, we need a global arms embargo to Burma. We need to support a reference to the ICJ for a genocide case. There's various other tiers. And the UK has not done this yet. But if we get enough people and get enough MPs on board, they will have to at least debate it in Parliament. Other things, you can basically piss off Dominic Ra because there's an automatic email again on my um, profile. Exactly. Um, which, where if, you, if you email him, it will just say, look, dude, you really have to impose sanctions. Because one of the things that we've asked him was targeted sanctions. Because the military, most of their money is coming in from their network of businesses. So, so far, he's actually, he personally, uh, but the UK has sanctioned um there's an oil business they've sanctioned they just today they sanctioned a gems business and what this is 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 literally cutting you know the funds to the military so you know the people in Burma are doing their best to cobble the the military but you know that's what we can do as well so so basically just just write to your mp um so has dominic rubbed on a good thing there he has, but very, very slowly. Basically, we've just been driving him mad by bombarding this him with emails. This government has done finally something competent very, no. very slowly after an enormous <laughs> amount of cajoling. <laughs> I won't have that. <laughs> I am outraged at that idea. Are they going to immediately do something really stupid to screw it up, though? Because that seems to be every time they do something where you go, that actually wasn't bad. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, one of the weirdest things that happened was that we... So Burma had a coup, but then we had a mini-coup in this country. So what happened was that um, military sympathetic officials locked the ambassador, the Burmese ambassador to London, out of his own office. So, <laughs> because he was wow. sympathetic to the people of Burma. Uh. So, so there was this like, weird circus, what? basically. London embassy coup? Yeah. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. Were they like throwing his clothes out the window? You're out. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. They, they've they've tried to evict him out of his house. At the moment, we don't have an ambassador to the UK. There's this guy who's like the charge d'affaires, I think he's called, and he he he's kind of sort of in charge, but not really. And then the the ousted ambassador is currently trying to sue, like in some kind of test case, saying. 
you can't do this. You can't just kick me out of the embassy. Wow. So, <laughs> so has the chap here got political asylum? There, are, there is discussion. I mean, again, Dominic Raab has said, yes, we will give you various assurances. Has he checked with Pretty Patel? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think Dominic Raab should be saying anything because he hasn't. Does he know? I mean... Yeah, okay. Okay, so we can sign petitions. We can find those where? What's your website and socials? Yes, um, my social media name is Memely, M-E-E-M-A-L-E-E. Um, you'll find every link that you ever need there. And it should take like five minutes and it will do wonders. It really will work. I know it sounds pathetic, but it really, really does oh, work. Oh, no, it doesn't sound pathetic. Can we donate anywhere? <laughs> you can. So there are various links on there as well. So that's going directly to the people who are on strike because, as I said, they're running out of money and they're running out of food. So, yeah, there, there are ways to donate as okay. well. Okay, and will we find all of that on your website? All of that's on mine. We'll put that in the show notes. And is there anything you came to say tonight that you didn't get to say? Um, just going to repeat what the guy of the UN said when he was talking about the coup guy in the UN. There's a, a diplomat called Ujo Wotan who was giving kind of testimony at the, the General Assembly in New York. And he basically betrayed the military live, so walked over to the side of the people. Um, and he said, the revolution must succeed. And I fully believe that. So, yep, the revolution will succeed, guys. The revolution will succeed. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> The Incredible House and Spittle! <laughs> oh my gosh, oh my gosh. I don't know. Okay, so this is doing stand up comedy. Alison, get used to it. <sighs> it's so nice to be here. It's so strange to do stuff in front of an audience, but it's lovely. I'm a comedian and I've been thinking about the jobs that I've done. And by the way, I was just thinking. One of my first ever jobs was I was paid to watch MasterChef and review it. And it just occurred to me there. When I first started doing comedy, um, Ireland did its own version of MasterChef. And they saw me in a newspaper. I'd got to the semifinals of a competition called So You Think You're Funny. And therefore, like, not much happens in Ireland. And they were like, well, she's obviously the new face of comedy. And uh, I was not. I really... <laughs> I, I was still in college, and they said, do you want a job reviewing MasterChef? You have to come on air and talk about MasterChef. And I was like, yeah, no bother. And I didn't have the concept that those people were real people. So I was just doing jokes at their expense, and I was really going in. And one guy, I was like, oh, just kill him. Like, I'm just sick, sick of looking at him. He's a dead horse, right? Next day, he was in the studio with me. <laughs> And he's like, am I a dead horse? And I was like, oh, I said a lot of things I don't mean. Uh, <laughs> Another job I had was, the first ever job I had, I was a food delivery person with my mum. <laughs> I was 12 years old. And uh, my mum was a single mum at the time, and she had to work. And um, she couldn't afford a babysitter, so she used to bring me in the car. And we realised we'd get more tips if I went and brought the food out. <laughs> So I would go out with the big bag and I'd bring it up and the person would be answering the door to be, huh? Are you working? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> what? How old are you? <laughs> I'm 12. <laughs> okay. And like, you'd get more tips, but it really was a risk. It was either more tips or a call to social services, <laughs> right? And we were willing to risk it for two quid extra. We're like, meh. I can talk him out of taking me away. Um, <laughs> you know? 
And um, the other job that I had was uh, when I was a teenager, I used to work in a wedding venue in Lincolnshire. It was a big tent, right? With a portaloo that played Love Actually in it. And uh, well, I used to just sit in the portaloo and watch Love Actually. And I was like, Martin McCutcheon is not fat. I don't get this. Like, it used to drive me mad. But, like, there's nothing like watching a romantic comedy while uh, smelling shit. Like, there is a real weird experience with that. But he used to call it posh news. And um, I was doing a wedding one day, uh, waitressing at a wedding, and I was bringing up the champagne. And uh, I, uh, I tripped, and I spilt this whole... I forget the word for... I'm thinking desk, plate, the thing in between that. Tray! <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm rusty. Like, I am very rusty. I am so rusty that I didn't bring a backpack here today, so I can't bring the wine out that's left backstage here. Like, that's how rusty I am. There's two, you know, I'll probably just put it under my arm. I don't know. I'll style it out. They leave wine here. Do you know? Sorry. That's a... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, you don't know what I'm talking about, do you? I'm sorry about this. So basically, back there, in a land of, of a kettle chips, right, and sweet and salty popcorn, they just leave bottles of wine because they think that you'd want wine. And, uh, you know, I do want wine, but not now. Like, I, <laughs> I'll put it into dinner later. Anyway, so what was it? Yeah. So the tray, thank you, a community helping each other to do stand-up comedy, I spilt the whole tray full of champagne and crystal glasses all over the bride, right? I know! I know! I know, I was high off the fumes of that portaloo, right? <laughs> but even I knew that was a faux pas, right? And normally, as a teenager, how I deal with faux pas is I just cry, you know, <laughs> like when things get too much. Ooh! So the bride is covered in champagne. I'm sobbing in the middle of the dance floor, right? The father of the bride comes over to me and comforts me, <laughs> right? I mean, if I was the bride, I would kick me in the face, like, you know. And I'm, he's coming over, he's like, you all right? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to get fired. And he's like, no, you're not. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. We're going to do a whip around. We're going to do a whip around. We won't get you fired at all, right? So, like, all these people are just looking at my tear-stained face, putting money into this hat, right? And then they bring it up to the, my boss and go, don't fire her. And he's like, yeah, yeah, no problem. Uh, I technically wasn't fired, but I was never called back for work, right? <laughs> so that's how he got around it. He kept that. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, and the other job, oh, yeah, the other job I have uh, was I used to host Quasar. I know, I'm a person of many skills. And uh, I loved working in Quasar because sometimes, like, I would bring a gun myself, you know, if there's, like, one less and I would just hide in Quasar. And like, if there's a kid, I didn't like kids that weren't my relatives because I don't know, you don't know the lay of the land with them. You know what I mean? Like they can attack, you can't do anything, right? <laughs> That's how I generally feel about kids. I look at kids with the same suspicion. I look at small dogs, you know what I mean? They're cute, but you could kill me. Uh, <laughs> and what I would do is sometimes you know, a kid would come up and try and hit me with a gun and go, ha-ha, you can't do anything, you know. I'd be like, nah, there's no rules in Quasar, baby. And then I would just hold them and pump the Quasar into their chest. And they'd be like, you can't do that. And I'd be like, I'm doing it. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so hope, sorry. <laughs> I feel like I've confessed a bit too far. Do you know? <laughs> 
Um, and you're just setting up the cello there. She's going to play the me. Oh, sorry, I shouldn't. Yeah, I'm, I'm not supposed to. I'm not. Do you know what? Not supposed to do a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> You know, not Alice is spreading everybody! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Our musical guest today, we are very honoured to have her. She is a composer, singer, songwriter, and cellist. That part's a bit of a spoiler. Uh, who became the first non-American to win first place at the Apollo Theatre's famous Amateur Night, whose previous winners included Ella Fitzgerald, and Jimi Hendrix. Please welcome Ayanna Witter-Johnson. Ayanna, can I just ask you, tell us a little bit about you and what you do. You're such a mega talent. Thank you for having me. It's like a dream come true. I'm actually on the Guilty Feminist podcast. It's amazing. I, I, <laughs> Already, I know this is the first of many times that you will come and join us. I don't, so please just phone it in because you'll be back again. Um, tell us a little bit about what it is that you do so remarkably. So I sing, I write songs, I play cello. This is Ruben, specifically Ruben and I sing songs together. Is that uh, the name of your cello? Yes. Nice. And I play piano and I compose for orchestras and string quartets and whatever people want me to do, really. I've just written something for solo soprano saxophone, so no instrument shall be left under. Wonderful. Well, <laughs> we are so excited, Ayanna, to have you. What are you going to play for us tonight? You're going to give us two songs? Yes, two songs. The first is the very first song that Ruben and I kind of played together and got to know each other through. And the second song is a song I wrote that I decided would be perfect for you tonight because this is the season of nightingale migration. And I thought it'd be lovely to share a song about nightingales. Oh, that's beautiful. I will take it away, Ayanna. <laughs> Thank you. 
walk the streets for money you don't care if it's wrong or if it's right Roxanne. you don't have to put on the red light Roxanne. you don't have to put on the I loved you since I knew you I wouldn't talk down to you Have to tell you just how I feel I won't share you with another boy I know my mind is made up So put away your makeup Told you what I won't tell you again It's a bad way Roxanne You don't have to put on the red light Roxanne No, you don't have to put on the red light No I thought I was going to cry at the end. I might actually cry. I was like, this is the first proper gig I've had in over a year, like with an actual audience. <laughs> oh, thank you for making me feel so welcome. I might still cry, but don't worry. I, I cry about a lot of things. <laughs> um, so this is Sing on Nightingale. You've been an absolute pleasure. Nightingale, 
Nobody loves your song Chasing the sun all year long Waiting for the right time to float back home Waiting for the day to break and unleash your song Beautiful as it always was Sing on a nightingale That was so beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Ayana, somebody on our live chat, because a lot of people watching this externally, thank you so much to everyone who tuned in. Um, and uh, somebody saying, don't forget... Oh, it's gone now. Uh, it's just flipped up. But don't forget to plug your show called London Unwrapped, somebody saying. Ah, yes, I shall be back in this very room on the 18th of September. So do come through. Tickets are selling fast, actually. Okay, so, yeah. Book your tickets now. It's coming round fast. And uh, we'll all meet back here on the 18th of September uh, for a whole concert. Yeah, a whole concert with special guests, possibly a string quartet with me. So we'll see. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so and um, where can we follow you? You can follow me on all the usual platforms at Ayana WJ, A-Y-A-N-N-A-W-J. Okay, great. So follow Ayana everywhere. Go and download her music. You can buy it, which is a really interesting option when you can stream it for free. Um, <laughs> but you have to remember that the cello pays Ayana nothing. You have to pay Ayana <laughs> to play with Ruben because Ruben himself is not a cash point. 
No. <laughs> Disappointingly, but typical man. Um, it's not, he's not carrying his own weight. Uh, she has to lug him around and everything. So if you could buy the music rather than just stream it for free, you would be supporting a brilliant female artist. So that's the right thing to do. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you. We can't wait to have you back again. Ayana WJ. Thank you. You have been listening to The Guilty Factors with me, Deborah Francis, my guest, Valentine, and our very special guests, Mimi A and Ayana Witter-Johnson. The Guilty Factors theme tune was composed by Mark Hodge and produced by Nick Sheldon. The producer was Tom Salinsky the Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Zoe, Tom, and everyone at King's Place, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. Titus haven't done them for so long, like except on a Zoom, which isn't the same, like with the audience laughing. And I just feel like I keep smiling, like oh. I can't even believe it's happening. Can I give you a hug? We've touched. I mean, I mean we've touched now. I mean, in the dressing room, we did elbows, but anything that happens on stage while we're unmasked, how vaccinated are you? Oh. Are you half? <laughs> Between us, then we're one. Are you half? Okay, yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> That was really nice. I oh know. my god, human contact. I it feels weird. Hug. Yeah. <laughs>